Welcome again, everyone, to uh, this podcast uh, sponsored by the American Geriatric Society on integrating research into the healthcare system and making this a true learning healthcare system enterprise around the, our nation and even around the world. And I am so pleased today to welcome uh, Dr. Catherine Callahan. I've known Kate for, for many years, and uh, she's a, a leader in this field. She's had a, a National Institute on Aging Beeson Award focused in this area and other projects, uh, Duke Endowment Award. And so Kate has a lot of experience, practical experience, I would say, in helping us think through these problems. And today we really want to talk to Kate about some of the lessons she's learned about the practical aspects of of, of this journey. And it's a journey and uh, we're all somewhere in the midst of it. So Kate, tell us about yourself a little bit more. Tell us a little bit about your work, and then I have a few questions for you. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. I'm always excited to talk to my my good friend, uh, Dr. Williamson, and I'm excited to, to be here today. So I have the wonderful pleasure of being at Wake Forest University School of Medicine, and it's been an exciting time as the relationship um, has been established with Atrium Health and now Advocate Health, and we continue to look to how we can fully understand how solutions for older adults can be scalable. So thinking not only about how we can deliver high quality care to older adults, but my real passion is thinking about how can we do that at scale and think about how all older adults can benefit from geriatrics influenced care, even if they are not able to access some of the elite geriatricians among us. So my focus in particular has been on frailty and on function metrics, how we can integrate those into the health system in a way that is easy to use for frontline clinicians and can inform shared clinical decision-making for older adults and specifically have partnered with Dr. Nick Pieski, who's a biostatistician, to bring an adapted version of Ken Rockwood's Frailty Index into practice. The eFrailty Index has been live in the Wake Forest electronic health record since late 2019, and we have had the opportunity to see it used by the health system, both uh, practically, as well as in some research spaces. So excited to talk about any or, or all of that today. Kate, thank you. I should say Kate is an associate professor here. And as you can tell, we, we have worked together for a while. And I was just thinking, Kate, uh, one question is, is at one point you were our fellowship director for geriatric medicine. And uh, I think there may be people listening to this podcast who are in that situation, who love education, are thinking, oh, I, I just don't know. I, I don't know if I could ever you know, make make that bridge to discovery and bringing new knowledge and discovery into the healthcare system. But I suspect that your time as a fellowship director really informed the things that you're doing now. And uh, I know I didn't prepare for this question or many of the questions I'm going to ask you, but <laughs> could you just uh, off the top of your head, talk a little bit about that transition and talk a little bit about how being a fellowship director really influenced your, your skill in, in really being a leader in creating an academic learning healthcare system? Absolutely. The first thing I would say is that I think that the scholarship of teaching, of education, is sometimes undervalued. 
And I say that because I think it's undervalued, even by educators ourselves. You know, I had a, a wonderful conversation at one point with Joe Auslander when I was sort of figuring out my my path. And as passionate as I was becoming about research, I didn't want to leave behind the education. And what I found is that there's a really, you know, big overlap between the world of implementation science and education in that both are predominantly concerned with behavior change. You know, for education, we think about it, you know, ultimately as, you know, you go back to the concept of the the Kirkpatrick pyramid or the understanding at what level does an educational intervention impact. Often we'll see that an educational intervention will think about focusing on a learner's experience um, or on their knowledge. But the holy grail of what happens with education is that we want to see this brought home to our older adult patients. We want to we want to change and make the course of care better for these individuals. That really is the focus, ultimately, of research too, right? It's just a different methodology of whether this is knowledge about a process of improving care, and that requires education. But as as Joe told me, it also requires tools, and we need to put tools in the hands of our learners that can help them categorize patients to understand their function and their cognition to you approach the process of their care in a way that is usable, that is feasible, that is respectful of their time and expertise. So yes, I, I would say that part of what I learned as a fellowship director is how very strapped learners are for time, that learners want to do the right thing for the patients in front of them. And another thing I learned is that the majority of people caring for the older adults whom we have dedicated our careers to are not geriatricians. So thinking about the need for geriatrics education, for me, drove a lot of my passion for developing, adapting, and integrating, especially implementing tools that can help frontline clinicians meet those needs and that their education, their their learning is supported by tools that make sense and can get the biggest bang for their energy. So what I'm hearing you say is that educating fellows was a great joy. And yet, even as you went through that process, you began to see that you weren't going to be able to educate enough fellows to fill the void and that we needed a, a better way to identify knowledge gaps and to get them into the healthcare system more broadly. I think that's what I'm hearing you say. So it is. I was wondering if I could share one very quick anecdote, Jeff. I was at a medical student research day and I had worked with a, a student. This is some years ago. And I was approached by a student who had worked with me who was planning on going into a, a non geriatric site, really a, a, a non UIM based field. And, you know, great to catch up and hear how he was doing. And he said, um, told me what he was doing and sort of apologized. And I said, never apologize. We all, we all take care of older adults. I said, you know, what you've learned will stay with you. And he smiled and said, I really hate to say this, Dr. Callahan, but I'm never going to use those tools. You know, I'm, I'm not going to do a lot of the assessments because they just take so much time. And 
he said, I, I really wanted to when I was doing my sub-internships or acting internships. It just, there never seemed to be enough time. And and he was bothered by that. He was troubled by that. And I was too. <laughs> you know, it was it was hard to wrap my head around that. And I started thinking, you know, is there a way, Jeff, you and I have talked for years about, you know, how do we help learners understand the heterogeneity of the aging population? And then you know, one of the top questions we invariably get whenever, whenever I would be recruiting fellows is, so what does it mean to take care of a geriatric patient? What is a geriatric patient and how do we know who is frail and who is not? How do we know who's vulnerable and who is not? In whom do we use these, these tests and these tools? So yes, I, I think you know, even as an educator, I was struck by a need for a practical approach that incorporated a high standard of evidence, but that could have a broad enough reach. And then as I got more into the study of implementation science, realizing that that was essentially a formula, you know, what is, what is the impact of a given tool or intervention multiplied by, by its reach? And, you know, recognizing that the tools you know, outside medicine that have really transformed the world are often those that are able to be used most broadly. So let's fast forward a little bit. You've learned those lessons you just talked about, and you're beginning to say, here's the question I want to answer in order to increase knowledge in the healthcare system about caring for older adults. But sometimes I think what happens is, is that we get so wrapped up in the question, we forget to build that coalition at the same time. So can you tell me at what point you began to build your health system coalition and kind of how that happened? Because again, many researchers have great questions, even discover great things that end up in wonderful journals, but they never go anywhere because I think they forgot that coalition building. Talk to us a little bit about that because that's such a key part of academic learning health system success. Oh, it's critical. And so much of it is approaching these questions with a sense of humility. I have been humbled many times, uh, will continue to be humbled by how fast our healthcare system is, how how much there is to know, and you know how very, very hard we're all working for the benefit of the people we care for. So I, I'll say that I think some of the coalition building happened while I was still predominantly an educator. I think that was one, one thing um, that was really important. You know, we at, at Wake Forest had had the joy and privilege of, of Reynolds Foundation funding. And that really started my relationship with a lot of other specialists, whether these are folks in hospital medicine or orthopedic surgery, urology, anesthesia, cardiology, you get the idea. But, you know, our focus had been on integrating geriatrics principles into specialties. And through that, I formed a lot of really wonderful relationships and the other thing that I learned through that process is how you know we could look at the same patient and have a very different perspective on this individual, and that mine was neither better nor worse than the other for, you know, physicians. It was simply simply different. And starting to learn what sort of just in time teaching, what sort of point of care testing, you know, the importance of speed and utility in understanding these concepts. The other thing that I learned was that. I knew one very tiny piece of the pie 
of how the process of caring for patients happens and how very different that looks from my office space in the the stick center or on the acute care of the elderly unit versus trauma surgery or the cath lab or the endoscopy suite. And that that these processes and these pain points, they often seemed to differ on the surface. But I also started noticing that there were a lot of themes and that I got a lot more in terms of understanding what was going on for our patients and and how I might be able to help, whether as a teacher or as a researcher, by starting out with just saying, tell me about what it's like to care for older adults and what worries you, what stresses you out about caring for older adults. Opening with that question rather than, hey, I got a great tool for you, um, got me way further. One of the the critical ideas, so one critical idea is knowing how you're an expert of your own domain, but not necessarily the rest of, of the system. So there's a lot to learn there. The second is, as researchers, we often want to find the truth, right? We want to find what is the answer to this underlying question. I think when you start looking at health systems change, a lot of it is a little, it's more about solving a problem. So going to potential partners and saying, hey, what is it about caring for this population that keeps you up at night? What do you worry about? Where's a gap where we might be able to help? And a lot of times those would filter down into what we would recognize as the four M's or the five M's. People ultimately are worried about multimorbidity, you know, the multiple chronic conditions that's the focus of this series. They're worried about frailty, function, cognition. They're worried about doing harm, whether it's through medications or through procedures. But I got a lot further in building relationship if the first thing I did was listen rather than going in and saying, hey, let me tell you about X, Y, Z. All right. So I would say the first few times that I would meet with people, I would listen. And then I would try to do something for them, you know, to help them understand or to share an article or see a patient or just just build a relationship and start to understand the challenge from their perspective. And it sounds like you started doing that before you had it all figured out on the answering the question side. You started listening, listening, and you're still listening to people, I know. I have a couple other questions. Before that, I would like a just a short description. Uh, many people understand the electronic frailty, so they've heard of it. I want a short description of that, very short, because then I want to ask you a few questions related to not the EFI, but related to the team that helped you build it and how that team differs from, say, let's say, traditional research teams. The EFI is a passive digital marker for frailty. And what that means is it draws from multiple aging-related deficits, or as it's called in the frailty index, that are gathered in the routine course of clinical care. So just as in the traditional frailty index will be populated often by elements that are derived from the comprehensive geriatric assessment, these are breadcrumbs that are in the electronic health record. We have a universe of aging-related deficits, you know, 50 plus, and 
the score is generated by seeing how many of these diagnoses, lab studies, functional measures, et cetera, are present. That generates a proportion, and that proportion between zero and one is the frailty score with higher scores, meaning higher frailty. So the first question is, is in a learning health system endeavor, based on your experience now, what kind of team members, what's the, there are some differences in my perception. I'm more of a traditional researcher, but your team looks different than my team. And so, uh, you know, they have a different skill sets. Sometimes they have the same skill set, but many are different. What sort of skill sets have you learned really help speed the process of uh, developing a learning health system project from start to finish? The first question is often, you know, where in the health system are we considering the application of this tool? Whether it's an intervention, whether it's a risk assessment tool like the, the EFI, a critical early partnership for, for us was with population health. And this occurred during the COVID-19 pandemic when folks were really trying to figure out and understand how could we stratify risk when a lot of our usual tools were upended by the disruption in delivery that was brought on by the pandemic. And I had the pleasure of working with folks like Kia Eaton and Jennifer Houlihan in our system through our education pathway and learned a lot through that time. And then circled back when this opportunity came forward. And I mean, Kia is is a nurse and and is an administrator and has a fabulous perspective on the concept of value-based care and also on the strategic deployment of staff. And so a really wonderful understanding of what it means to deliver services and you know, what are all of the moving parts in the health system. You truly a staggering amount of information. So someone like Kia or we've also had a great partnership with Jennifer Houlihan. Why don't you say what Jennifer's role is in the organization? Jennifer is a vice president, particularly focused on our value-based contracts. And so her understanding is really about how the health system payment models are changing, the structure of an accountable care organization, next generation accountable care organization, and you recognizing all of the different levers that are at play in the delivery of high-quality care. These are folks who have their ear to understanding reimbursement structures, how policy is changing, and the conversations that are happening around around health policy. While I work with, of course, Nick as a biostatistician, we, we have a master's level statistician who works with us. Her focus, though, is almost exclusively on the derivation of data and the cleaning of data that comes from the electronic health record. And in addition, we work with someone who has a background in IT, a few people who have backgrounds in IT, where their focus is you know, not building models. You know, I'm thinking about what has been done for some you know, traditional research studies where, say, you're building a database or something like that, critical work. We're kind of trying to interface with the database that is already in existence and figuring out how to collaborate on both the clinical front so that for instance, when, when we were putting together our Duke Endowment Foundation project, we needed to figure out how we could track specific outcomes. Jen Gabbard has done this masterfully in her work with advanced care planning. And what we worked for is 
really understanding is sitting down to Adam Moses and understanding, well, how, how does this happen? You know, how does a note get put into Epic? What are the, the pathways? What are flow sheets? What are, what are places where data reside? You mentioned Adam Moses. Tell, tell the audience what Adam Moses, what's his title? What does he do? Oh, sure. So Adam is, Adam works in information technology and really has a focus on how to extract data from the electronic health record, how to interpret those data, how to, in terms of their, their location and their optimal placement. He has some expertise in user-centered design. So where is it comfortable and optimal to put this information? So I know we've only got a couple minutes left, but I want to so congeal some of what you just said. What I hear you say is the the traditional researcher is thinking about payment systems from the NIH. We're thinking about how we get our NIH dollars to move through. We're thinking about how do we construct data sets for research purposes. But your work has said, how do I leverage people who understand how payments come through the healthcare system? How does data come through the healthcare system? And actually, someone like Kia Eaton, who's a frontline supervisor of care navigators, what are their needs on the healthcare system? So you put together that coalition to really begin to say, how can something like a frailty index help the healthcare system, help frontline workers, et cetera? Uh, In the last couple of minutes we have, I've got two things I want to ask you. First is, I know that you've not only experienced successes, but you've experienced some failures. And we have this concept in innovation of failing fast, fast as in the eye of the beholder, I realize. But nevertheless, I know I'm thinking of one example when you fail, when, when you didn't fail, but we just realized that this was not going to be a success. Therefore, it was a failure. At what point did you know that a particular learning healthcare system initiative was not going to be a failure? And you ought to just put that on the shelf for a while, maybe come back to it. You know the one I'm talking about. I do. I do. And, and I think in that case, what we realized was that one of the key elements for a health system initiative or intervention is demand. People need to want it. Now, that could be patients, that could be providers, but we were seeking to intervene with frail older adults at a somewhat tumultuous time for them. You know, we were, we were thinking about the perioperative space I think what what you're telling me is you found that the perioperative space required a whole lot more coalition building than we, and and an understanding of what the community caring for those individuals was willing to sacrifice in order to improve care. And we we, we didn't get there, right? Oh, we didn't get there. And what is it that made you, uh, because we can't keep doing things that just beating our head against the wall. What, was there anything that came to your mind that said, oh, this is not a particular place in the learning healthcare system that I need to spend my efforts. I want to move on. And you did move on. What, what happened? And you can be, look, we're all among friends. It's all Las Vegas here. Go ahead. So, I mean, a, a, f- a few things happened. One was that there are a couple of external things and a couple of internal things. An external thing is that our numbers did not look good. I mean, you know, if we had been trying to recruit for an NIH trial, uh, you know, I would have been losing sleep every night. So the numbers of people whose lives you were touching, patients, really was, was low in the end. Yeah. As one of our friends says, the juice was not worth a squeeze. You know, we were not getting the numbers that we needed. The second is that we were not in a position where the people who could control, we did not have the people who controlled timing and patient flow on the team. I I think another thing we learned that was really valuable was how stressful 
this particular period of time was for older adults and how they did not have the capacity to add one more item or one more thing to their world during this time. The other thing was a was an internal feeling. And I, I think that just as we often say when we're seeing a patient or when we're, you know, when we're working this space, you know, you'll get a, a feeling of concern or anxiety or what have you. And I was starting to notice that the meetings that we had about this were really difficult. You know, the the bloom had gone off the rose, you know, what had it started as a really exciting relationship and partnership had become really difficult. It's kind of like trying to make a relationship work that isn't working anymore. And we needed to part ways. Not that we wouldn't work together in the future, but what we were able to say was now is not the time, you know, until there is such a time where XYZ can be different, we're not going to be able to make this work. Great. I got one last question for you. One of the things that I've learned through you and with you is how sometimes in a learning healthcare system environment, unlike traditional research, our learning and our discovery shows up in places we would never expect. And um, it even wins competitions sometimes where we <laughs> we didn't even know that it was being entered. So can you just close by just telling our audience about just a few examples in the healthcare system, but then in the recent student competition that we had uh, sponsored by the dean about where uh, this particular learning health tool of the electronic frailty index kind of just started showing up everywhere. Can you do that? And then we'll, we'll close after that. Absolutely. Uh, three examples come to mind. Um, one is a pharmacy resident used the EFI along with another, another score to, as part of her residency project, to test what was the optimal way of identifying folks who would benefit from a post-discharge medication reconciliation program. That was wild. You know, you get a notification of publication and I was really excited to, to see that. Another example was a colleague of ours in anesthesia who recently published in JAMA Open with uh, the EFI looking at outcomes in the perioperative space, a really um, elegant um, examination and and a great example of how you know, we had started in that space and we will likely be able to come back to it and you know that we we iterate over time. Fail is not a cap. There's not a capital letter starting that word fail. That that's just a that's an example that even though we thought we failed or you thought you quote failed, yeah, here comes a publication out of this out of nowhere. Here's it comes a publication and the other thing is that you know that may generate interest, opportunity, and sponsorship at a higher level that may make our ideas possible. And then the, the other one, which was just great fun, was I was you know going through the um, medical student posters and um, at Medical Student Research Day, which is one of my favorite days of the year, and met a young woman who is presenting work on frailty in the HIV population. And what was great is that she was talking about the tool and how this was you know integrated and asked if I'd heard of it and uh, which was a, a fabulous, uh, a fabulous moment. Um, and I said, yeah, just keep going, just keep going. This is, this is great. But that was a wonderful feeling to see that it was not only, you know, ubiquitous. I think there were eight or nine posters that had to do with it. And I only had one student this summer. So it was, they were not all my students. And you did finally reveal your secret identity to the person at the end, right? I, I eventually did. I eventually did. But I told her you know, how well she had done. Yeah. I wanted your autograph and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> and then a winning, one of the winning entries uh, also, was, was, is that the one that won? That was the one that won. Tremendous. So, uh, yeah, I think that that's, you started off this talk about 
one of the key ingredients to successful, I think, uh, academic learning health systems success is just being humble and not, yeah, knowing that many times your discovery is going to be used and it just, just being able to get joy out of the fact that people are using things in ways you never would have imagined. Well, there's a there's an amazing person, you know, Artie Hurria, uh, who's well known in research circles, would, would talk about how much you can get done if you don't care who gets the credit. Yeah. And I think that recognizing that uh, there's a lot of really hardworking people who deserve that credit, and that if we can help our ideas get to the person, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about the patients. John Wooden, the great UCLA basketball coach, said the same thing. I'm I'm trying to figure out where that actually originated that whole statement, but. Um... Anyway, uh, it's been wonderful talking to you. I knew it always. I always knew it would be. Uh, we could probably talk for another two hours, uh, even though you and I have talked about these things many times. There's always new alleys to go down, and so I just always enjoy it. And I really want to thank you. I just thank our audience for listening, and I want to thank the American Geriatric Society for sponsoring uh, this series of podcasts. And um, hopefully, this has been helpful uh, to to many of you out there. Uh, if you uh, want to get in contact with us? I think you'll you'll know how to do that. But uh, we're out there uh, on the on the web in different places. But um, thanks again, uh, Dr. Callahan. I really appreciate it. As always, Dr. Williamson. Thank you.